Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Great to have you here. It's great on a baptism Sunday. If you're our guest today, we're just thrilled that you're here. My name's Jerry. I'm the lead pastor. Uh, last week, I forgot to mention a, a new person that was uh, elected to our leadership team here at Seoul. Uh, we want to welcome Kayla Dick. Uh, there's Kayla and her husband. Uh, she's also on our prayer team. She's in charge of our dance team. She's got a little baby on the way. But we're really excited um, that she's now a part of our team. If you have questions about our governance and how we do things here at Seoul, we highly encourage you to uh, take our growth tracks and that finds out who we are as a church, uh, as a church community. And uh, you can actually go online. You can sign up for the next one. That's going to be happening in January. Now, we're going to have to put our theological thinking caps on. And I'm pressed for time, so I'm going to fly. But before we do that, let's pray. God, today I'm reminded that when we come, we may not be at the place where we need to be. We realize that you're closer than we realize. And that you're pre present in and around our lives is always constant. So right now, just slow us down. Open our ears. Clear our minds. And take the load off and speak to us, I pray. Amen. So what we do here at Soul is we pick a book of the Bible and we walk through it. We've been walking through Matthew for about 18 years now. <laughs> it's almost done. And uh, uh, again, so, so to give you framework, we're walking through the book of Matthew. We're actually getting up to the Passion of the Christ, you know, Easter time, all that stuff. And this is exactly where we pick up this morning. Uh, last week, Matthew, and, and if you ever want to get history of where we've been, just go back online and you can watch all the uh, podcasts and, and get yourself up to speed. But last week, Jesus just finished celebrating Passover with his disciples. He taught them a new perspective of the bread and the cup. And like I said, go back and watch. And uh, we left last week with them walking out, singing a hymn, to, uh, and moving out to the Mount of Olives. Now, Jewish law required that Jesus and his disciples actually stayed in Jerusalem or its surrounding area on the night of the Passover. They only allowed so many steps, so to speak. So they couldn't go back to Bethany. That's where they were hanging out. They couldn't go back there as usual. So it was interesting. Jesus leads them into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is really just on the, the city limits, on the edge. And he's taken them to, to this place many times before. And I believe, as so does uh, John, uh, in the book of John chapter 18, uh, that Jesus takes them to Gethsemane, so it's an easy place for Judas to find them. So, let me set up the passage. Everybody is rattled up to this point. Jesus just told them in that room, one of you guys are going to betray me. We know it's Judas, obviously. And then he institutes this new supper, the Last Supper, the Eucharist, communion, right? Uh, this remembrance of him. And now the boys are a bit out of sorts. Jesus then says, okay, let's go. Let's get out of here. They start walking. They're trying to put it all together. And scripture says this very night, he's looking at them all, his 11 boys at this point in time. And he says, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, the word that Jesus used here, falling away, wasn't, you know, slipping off the bandwagon, shrinking from our duties, you know, quietly slipping off into the night, hoping nobody will notice. Actually, it's a complete desertion. 
So now Jesus is, again, talking with his disciples. Eleven of them are with him. And he's going to say, you guys are going to bail out on me. He then quotes the prophets to him because he's prone to do that. He makes a statement and then brings up the Old Testament. And he quotes Zechariah 3.17. God spoke of the coming Messiah in that prophecy. God was announcing that this promised Messiah would suffer before he would reign. And, and when he would be struck down, the people would be dispersed for a time. And even though there was a much larger national fulfillment um, of this verse yet to come, Jesus let his disciples know that this partial fulfillment was about to occur with them. He was the shepherd. He was about to be struck. They were the sheep. They were about to be scattered. But it was interesting because he continues on. And he says, but after I have risen, I'll go ahead of you in Galilee. So not only does he deliver a blow that gets them you know, just off kilter, he gives them an encouragement and a hope I'm not convinced that many of them picked up on this because of the actions that we see. But it's interesting that he still gives them hope. And so here's Jesus. Jesus was in absolute sovereign control over all that was occurring to him. All things were occurring according to the Father's will. We see that throughout Scripture. It was his divine purpose for him. It was all happening just as Scripture promised. It was being laid out. But the disciples, especially people, Peter, he really didn't understand this. And so Peter replies, look at Jesus, even if everybody else falls away from you, I never will. He's adamant, not him. You know, Peter, he's big, he's bombastic. bombastic. He's a bull in the china shop, so to speak. He vows to be the rock that Jesus wants him to be. He wants to be dependable. He wants to be steady. He wants to be there. He wants to be strong. Even if he has to die, he says, he makes this promise that nothing will come between him and Jesus. You know, I got this, Jesus. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. And so Peter is this leader from the get-go. But sometimes when we look in the scriptures, we see he asked too many questions. He couldn't seem to let some things go. He had a hard time, Peter did, following and he made a, a few mistakes. It was interesting. Peter's always the first to speak up with, and to step up, to get his hands dirty, to jump into the deep end, so to speak, <laughs> literally. But Peter had all the elements of a good leader. He really did. A leader, a disciple upon whom Jesus would eventually build his church. He was also the disciple that Jesus had to lay into time after time for a good reason. Why? Because he was headstrong so those of us who are headstrong people, think about it. Every once in a while, we need some refining again and again from people who love us. And Jesus was very quick to give that to Peter. Peter heard Jesus hinting at this doom. He didn't realize the full implications. I'll stick with you, Jesus. And of course, Jesus says, you know, truly, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Now, Three times. When you read this passage, when you go through Matthew, he's hung up on three. I can do a whole numerology, but then I'll start growing a horn out of the side of my head and stuff like that will be happening. I'm not going about to do that. So, but Matthew is hung up on the issue of three, and I'm hung up on the issue of three. And so I was doing some research, and I came across an obscure point. And I have to say, I haven't validated it, but it will preach. Okay? Now, listen to this. Supposedly, I found a cross. Now, again, I, I was trying to find other sources to validate this, and maybe if you know it, it, it would help me. But supposedly, in the first century Middle Eastern culture, if somebody broke their word three times, 
it would be then appropriate for you to break your relationship permanently with that person, which I found fascinating. And if that's true, then the implications of Jesus' grace with Peter are huge, as we will eventually see as the story unrolls. But the fact is Peter pledges his allegiance. He has the best of intentions. Even if I die with you, I'll never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Yeah, me too, me too, me too. It's not the first time this happens. You know, the, the word that Jesus chooses to deny it was also used earlier in Matthew. And again, it's in context with Peter. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus goes back. He rebuked Peter for telling him that he would protect him unto death. Jesus uses a famous statement that we often reiterate to people in our lives, get thee behind me, Satan, right? Said that to Peter. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So Jesus turns to all of his disciples. He reminds them that the true disciple has to deny, deny their own life. Not only does Jesus intend to die, but anyone who wants to be his disciple must be prepared to go the same way. I like the way that C.S. Lewis phrased it. He, he described it in Mere Christianity as this. He said, to become new people means losing what we now call ourselves. Out of ourselves into Christ we must go. His will is to become ours. We are to think his thoughts, to have the mind of Christ, as the Bible says. And if Christ is one, and if he is thus to be in us all, shall we not be exactly the same? It certainly sounds like it, but in fact it's not so. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take over us, the more truly ourselves we become. There's so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, all different, will still be too few to express him fully. Jesus is asking us to deny him ourselves. He invites us not to overcome who we are, but to surrender who we are in our devotion to him. It's not just a mere verbal pledge that Jesus asks for them. It's an emphatic invitation. The true disciple has to deny themselves completely. This is the teaching of Christ. There is no other way. And yet here Jesus prophesies correctly. His disciples will not deny themselves. They'll deny him. Jesus never asked Peter to deny his personality or his leadership potential or his shutzpah. He, he asked Peter to deny his own desires, his own need for power, for control. Peter is a natural leader who thought critically, who took risks for the kingdom, even though sometimes he acted dumb as a sack of hammers, and we see that. He loved who he was. Jesus loved who he was, and when Peter finally gave his life to Jesus' mission, Jesus redirected his personality for God's purposes to become the rock for the church. And on a side note, I look at this story, and I'm, I'm thrilled that, that this story of tragic failure is in the Scriptures for us. Because I find it personally comforting the fact that this happened. There's some very good news of hope for the rest of us here because we're imperfect followers of Jesus who, like Peter, we often fail him, do we not? Hmm, I hear coughs and crickets. I don't know about anything else. Have you ever failed Jesus? Oh, we're in church. We better not say anything. I don't know. I might get struck by lightning. Have you ever in some way denied him? It's a pretty stupid question, isn't it? Because of course you have. More times than you would like to admit. And, and so have I. 
And that's why I love this passage. Tucked away in a story of Peter's failure is the good news that in our God's kingdom, these failures don't have to be fatal. The night is late. The conversation is heavy. Jesus goes with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He says, sit here while I go over there and pray. He takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Gethsemane is more than just a garden. It's an olive farm with an olive press. Jesus and his disciples entered into this garden approximately around 10 to 11 p.m. Thursday night. Jesus dies on Friday at around approximately 3 so we got 12 hours, less than 12 hours before he's about to be crucified. I believe that this is Jesus' darkest night of his life. Gethsemane means oil press in Hebrew. An oil press is this huge stone that is used to crush and press olives to produce the oil. And so here we see in Gethsemane, Jesus is crushed. He is overwhelmed with sorrow. He is pressed to the very limits. And what we see in Gethsemane actually is one of the most painful and lonely moments in Jesus' life. It's a dark night in the garden. The word translated overwhelmed is a word that speaks of deep grief and sorrow. Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This, this shows the severity of the trial that he's going through. And what he experienced here goes far beyond anything you and I have or will ever experience. And I don't say that lightly. Because Jesus' sorrow and suffering and abandonment are all part of his passion. All part of the suffering that he has to undergo for our behalf. He doesn't cheat. If he is truly to suffer and die for sin, he has to experience true suffering and true death. He's not going to coast through it as some sort of superhuman. Rather, he will suffer through it as a human being. He's pressed to his limits. I love that. Because it tells me that Jesus knows when you and I are pressed to our limits. He knows what it's like. Hebrews 2 says, Because he him suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Some of you know what it's like in your darkest night. You've been there. Lonely. Devastated. Anxious. Abandoned. Facing death. Maybe even your friends or your spouse won't be able to understand the darkness and the excruciating pain that you've experienced. I keep coming back to this over and over again. I hope you forgive me for always bringing it up. But for me, it was when we lost our boy, Josiah. It was dark. It was devastating. It's painful. And words can't express it. So then I look and I go, so why did Jesus have to go through this? You know, He's the one who knew no sin. He's the perfect Son of God. Now He's in the darkest place of the darkest moment of His life. The sin of the whole world was about to be unloaded on Him. Matthew tells us that Jesus is sorrowful. He's troubled. That word sorrowful appears 26 times in the New Testament. It means grief, sorrow, pain, distress. It describes a severe mental or emotional distress. That word trouble only appears three times. It means depressed, overwhelmed with anxiety, a heavy burden of mind. 
Have you ever felt the same way? In pain, under severe mental and emotional distress, overwhelmed with anxiety. Do I get an amen on that? Your mind can't think. It's almost like 2,000 tons of concrete is poured on you and, and you feel sad as if you're about to die. You know, as a pastor, I've witnessed some of the darkest nights among us, close up and personal. A grieving spouse when the wife says, I don't love you anymore, I'm leaving you for another man. Boom! It's like a 30-foot tsunami come running right at you, taking everything away. Parents in pain, contemplating the death of a child or of their children. It can't be. It's impossible. Everything stops to make sense at that moment. The failed business, the owner has worked so hard for it, now it's just crumbling down despite their strongest efforts. You want to talk about sadness? Or the doctor with the cancer verdict, right? It spread. Now you know your days are ahead are hard and literally numbered. And you think you're sad. You're de- devastated. You're depressed. You're overwhelmed with sorrow. That's why I love this story. Because Jesus, in his darkest night in Gethsemane, was more so. God made him who knew no sin become sin for us all. He tells his closest buddies, my soul is deeply troubled to the point of death. Nobody, none of us can really know the depth of Jesus' sadness at this time. The word that he uses there is the strongest word possible for sadness. The event was about to take place was the very reason why he had come to earth. It was a terrible task. He's about to be arrested. He's about to, even though he's innocent, he's about to be lied about, even though he told the truth and he was the truth. He's about to be beaten, though he came to bring peace. He's about to be hung on a cross and left to die, the punishment of a murderer, although he came to bring life. But worse than anything any man could do, God would turn away from him. Why? Because he took the sins of the world on. This was almost more than Jesus could bear. His heart ached at the thought of being without his father for even a moment. Matthew records that Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to to watch for him. Watch means to give strict attention, to be cautious, active, you know, keep your eyes out open. Jesus knew armed soldiers were on the way to arrest him. He asked his friends to be lookout so that he could focus on prayer and nothing more. The Bible says that he went a little further beyond the three and he threw himself down on the ground and he began to pray and his prayer was a simple expression of his grief and of his submission to the Father's will. And I wonder if those three overheard any of his groanings because the prayer must have been so intense. He was in agony in great momentary anxiety and I believe fear. That cup of which Jesus spoke is the cup of God's wrath of judgment on the wicked. You can hear the heart of Jesus as he, as he prays to his heavenly Father, as he agonized over his situation. The weight of the sin of the entire world was about to come crashing down on the only sinless person who has ever walked the earth. And the wrath of God was something that Jesus had never experienced before. Jesus who is fully God and yet is also fully human. 
And God was certainly able to keep Jesus from suffering on the cross if he wanted. He could have spoken one word. Jesus would have been taken right out of the garden, seated beside his Father in heaven. But God wasn't willing for Jesus to avoid the cross. If Jesus had not given his life on the cross, our sins would not be forgiven. We would be separated. We'd be punished for our sins. We'd face eternity in hell, separated from God. Now, God is going to make Jesus sin for us all. He would stand condemned in our place. He would suffer and die as our substitute. That's what this good news is all about. Go figure. The wrath of God would be poured out on him. He would be separated from the Father. And that's why it's so dreadful for Jesus. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed that this cup be removed from him. But then he also said, yet not as I will, but as you will. I believe without question, Jesus prayed respectfully and honestly. And I think that that's probably one of the most difficult prayers to pray. Being with, honest with God with how you feel. Acknowledging that God is good and He would listen to your cries is another thing. Yet at the same time, being completely submissive and obedient to God that His will be done. Which leads me to believe that prayer does not change God. Prayer changes us to the will of God. God is both good and sovereign. He is both loving and wise. And when you pray during your darkest nights, be honest with how you feel because it's okay that you're devastated. It's okay that you're sad. It's okay that you're depressed. It's okay that you're overwhelmed with anxiety. Tell God about it in your prayer. We read Jesus returning to his faithful disciples, right? Who just insisted, we're not going to leave you, Jesus, but they're out like rocks. And I don't think we need to be too hard on them because in the first place, they couldn't keep their eyes open. But Luke tells us in the corresponding passages that they're exhausted from grief. Of course, there's an emotional roller coaster going on here. Jesus looks at them and says, hey, can't you just stay awake for my benefit? Like, you know, not just for my benefit, but for your benefit. Pray that you don't fall into temptation. And it's interesting because these guys couldn't even pray for themselves. And they did fall into temptation. And of course, Jesus uses a familiar phrase, well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I'm sure they wanted to stay awake, but they obviously couldn't. I've seen it myself in church. I've done it myself in church. <laughs> you, know, you know the nod, right? You're not agreeing with the pastor. I know you're sleeping. Jesus leaves them and he goes back and he prays again. He prays the same prayer only to return to find his disciples asleep once again. This time he let them sleep. He returned again, once again. And I find it somewhat interesting to note that Jesus prayed how many times? Three times. And he remained true to his calling. The disciples didn't watch and pray. And so Peter and the boys fail, what, again? How many times? Three times. Now again, I don't know whether for certain Matthew intends for us to make much of the number three or not, but it seems worthy of note. The last time Jesus returns, he wakes up the boys and he says, uh, listen, the hour of my betrayal is at hand. And he gets them to their feet and he says, my betrayer is coming, the time has come. And what I see emphasized in this scene in Gethsemane is the frailty and failures of the disciples as a backdrop to the faithfulness of Jesus. They assured Jesus that, that 
you know, we won't abandon you, but they couldn't even stay awake with him in his most difficult hour. Jesus assured them that he would die as the Passover lamb, bringing about the new covenant. And he remained faithful to his calling, even when his disciples are weak and failing. You know, and the fact of the matter is, again, I come back, I'm thrilled about the story because we are all stumbling disciples learning to lean on God's grace. The disciples abandoned Jesus, but Jesus didn't abandon them. Isn't that something to hold on to? Jesus died for sleeping disciples like you and me who fail him repeatedly. Notice his sorrow. Notice that he prays, not my will, but your will. This passage of Scripture is the closest where Jesus will ever come to say, don't lead me to the cross. I don't want to do this. Notice in his prayers, he says, if there's any other way for me to not do this, yet not as I will, but as you. He went a second time, again, prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. The requests are a little bit different. Very subtle. There's a difference in the way that he phrases his prayer. But yet we notice that Jesus has come to this point of acceptance in his prayer. Accepting God's will in this matter. You know, the first prayer, if it's possible, take it away. The second prayer, if it's not possible, may your will be done. Jesus knows there's no way of removing the cup of God's judgment and wrath of sin against him unless he drinks it, unless he goes through with it. And so, through prayer, he comes to a resolution. Basically, he's saying, if there's, if there's no other way to save mankind except for my going to the cross, then may your will be done. Lead me to the cross. Notice that Jesus' prayer did not change the outcome. It changed Jesus. He found strength in his prayer to accept God's will and to move forward. And that's the heart of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. He submits to the obedience of the Father. He clearly states his own will in the matter. Uh, Take it away from me. But he prays for the Father's will to be done. And I think it's a good example for all of us to follow in prayer. Obedience is God's love language. Jesus submitted to his Father's will. To submit means to give up your control to somebody else. To say, you know, I'll do it my way. But we're going to say to God, I'll do it your way. Jesus promised to do whatever his Father wanted him to do. And he set aside what would seem to be good, which was actually not dying on the cross. seems pretty good. Rather, for God's plan, which was far better. And you notice that Jesus didn't stop praying until he came to a place of peace in God's will. So when do you and I stop praying? Maybe not until we've actually overcome something. Not until you've come to the place of trusting God and His will in the matter. Maybe we give up too easily in our prayers. You ever thought of that? Maybe we need to learn to start praying through. Maybe we need to go back to the story and see what was going on here. Because what does all this mean for us today? This is a tough passage of Scripture. It really is. How do you walk away from this passage of Scripture and apply it to our lives? You know, I have to think that we need to start with the fact that we need the person of Jesus as central in our life and in our thinking. And, And we're constantly reminded of the cross of Christ in the core of our being. It's always there. 
The cross always reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice. The cross calls us and challenges us to follow Jesus. Without the cross, there's no point on being a church. So then, what's the role of prayer? Is it a willingness to surrender and to say to God, your will be done? Is, you know, what does prayer look like for us? And looking at this passage, we see that Jesus was a person who believed in prayer. He did all the time. Why would Jesus need to pray? Uh, the answer is actually simple, because Jesus was a man created in the image of God. Whose image are you created in? Humankind is created to live in complete and constant dependence on the Creator. Jesus is the perfect example of what a relationship with God should be like. In that garden, he prayed, not because of his sorrow, but because he was praying, God, is there any other way? And he was sorrowful. He was troubled. He was overwhelmed. But you know what he did? He prayed through the pain. His sorrow was multiplied on so many other factors. He knew the appointed time with the cross had come. He knew it was there. He's the only one who's really going to understand the pain and the suffering. And the unimaginable burden carrying the sins of countless generations to the cross. It was so heavy on him, and yet he still prayed. You ever notice when we face crisis that we stop praying? You know, the one reason is that we have this inherent need to fix the problem ourselves. And we rely on our own strength and our own resources. We, you know, it's self-reliance, right? It comes from a belief that prayer does not change or help the trouble that we're in. Yeah, I prayed before and nothing's happened. And so what do we do? We're compelled to take matters into our own hands. And we say, well, I can do this myself. But let me be really honest. I don't even need to say this. We can't. And it's in this painful moment that Jesus teaches us the necessity of prayer even when difficulties seem intolerable. You know, we're speechless when surgery is the next morning, aren't we? Words don't come when sadness chokes your throat and blurs your mind. Prayer can be the furthest things from our minds when our senses are overwhelmed with anguish. But that is exactly when Jesus prayed. He prayed through the pain to His Father on whom He depended on all things. And I think this is our lesson. Too simple, too painful, too true. But if you can do nothing else to pray, to get the words out, at least take on the posture of prayer and just cry to Him. Because we can take comfort in the truth that's found in Romans, the Spirit in our weaknesses. We don't know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Secondly, prayer is supposed to be shared. Jesus rejects the attitude of self-reliance. That's not his way. That's not what he's taught. He exempl- that's not what he exemplified. In the garden, he's even asking the boy, stay here, keep watch with me, watch and pray. It's in moments like these, Jesus teaches us the value of shared prayer. Why do we think we can bear the burdens alone when we can't? If Jesus shared his most monumental prayer request with his disciples, what makes us think that we can handle our own problems alone? That's what the church community is for. You know, here's my theory. 
Some people think that advertising their problems is a sign of weakness. Oh, they're, they're just weak people, especially in Mennonite culture. Just saying, just throwing it out there. Every time I bring up Mennonite, somebody gets offended. Well, you're a pacifist. There's nothing you're going to do about it. So it's, you can just walk out. But that's our culture, is it not? That's Manitoba culture. You know, we humble ourselves and we say nothing. And what we don't realize is that the real pride is saying nothing and that true humility is sharing your burden with others around you that care. True humility admits that we can't tackle these troubles and problems alone. And I think that while all Christians struggle with pride, I get that, Manitobans are notorious for sucking it up. we got to suck it up and not reveal any weakness. And that's just not the way the church should be. Praying for each other is what the church relationships are all about. I will never forget being with one of our members filled with cancer. Time was at the end. He calls the guys from the church to come in. My dad was still alive at the time. And we sit with him. His name was Jerry. And I remember sitting in his living room. And he goes, guys, I just need you to pray. He's weak. His moments are numbered. I just need, I just need you to pray. But I got no words. My dad turns immediately and he says, that's why we're here. We will be your words. You know, we act sometimes like we possess a locked box of secrets and we're too afraid to share our secrets to a community. And in our boxes, right, there, I was going to get a little box and put it on stage. It, it contains our past. It, it contains dark secrets. It contains little things we wish no one would know. And I believe that many people in church, not just Seoul, but all over, have locked boxes. And we're not experiencing peace. We're not experiencing freedom. We're not experiencing forgiveness. We're not experiencing healing because we're afraid of what people are going to say about our secrets or our wounds. And it's precisely the wounds in our relationships that keep many of us from experiencing a life of prayer. And when we're hurting and we draw back, we make ourselves vulnerable. We've been burnt before and we don't trust anybody with our burdens. And so we lock it away and perhaps we pray, but no one intercedes because nobody has no idea what's going on in us. And what we don't realize is that those words, when accepted, become positive realities Showing us exactly where we need God's help in our lives. Prayer is supposed to be shared. It's supposed to be interwined. No one who is hurting should be hurting alone. Even if you don't know what's bothering you, it affects everyone. No one can read minds. We need to share our burdens. And the church is called to prayer. And this is a corporate prayer that we all pray because we all need God. And that's why I'm so thankful for our crosses. So I'm so thankful for the requests. We also need quality time. The atrium doesn't really work for me to share for prayer requests because people are always running from somewhere. But you'll notice that even Jesus said, hey, can you not just spend like 60 minutes basically with me? <laughs> We're not sure of the timeline, but... He asked for some time on the most important time of his life. Take time to meet people. Take time to pray with people. Quality time. You also know that Jesus' prayers are repeated. I used to struggle with the idea of repeated prayers. Honestly, I used to think, well, you know, God is not deaf the first time. He knows all things, so why bother him again? Jesus teaches us to be persistent in our prayers. Luke 18, the story of the widow knocking, 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 knocking. 
Again, the illustration is not about her going to God. It's about her going to a, a judge and getting uh, what she wants. God does care, people. He does listen. God will not bring about injustice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night. So what's the purpose of repeated prayer? It shows God that we mean business. Don't give up. Don't stop. It's too easy, too shallow, too cheap to pray and then walk away and think no more more about it. Keep on praying indicates determination on our part and the confidence that God is able to do His part. I encourage you, whatever you're going through, don't stop praying. Keep on praying. The problem with repeated prayers is that we pray and we don't get an answer, right? It's like talking to the ceiling. We put a whole lot of time calling out to God. We worry about our problem and feel like God isn't, right? And we just feel empty and the result is apathy. Why pray? I don't get an answer I want or any answer for that matter. Why should I even pray? And we grow so tired of the so-called power of prayer. And apathy then can actually become very defeating for our faith, for us as individuals. But you notice how each time Jesus comes and he checks on his disciples, he finds them sleeping. You know, how do you sleep on a night like that? But they're not aware of the battle that's taking place. These men were not spiritually in tune with the issues and dangers Jesus was facing. It wasn't that they didn't care. They just didn't know what to care or how to care. And so what if your prayers go unanswered? There's no verse to quote on this point. But I notice that God doesn't answer Jesus' repeated prayer. Do you see that? So what do you do when God says nothing at all? When He's silent? And I think it's here we learn about the mystery of unanswered prayer. Jesus repeatedly says, take this cup away. And He ends it with, thy will be done. And I think that that's the hardest thing to say is thy will be done. It's hard because we want it, our will to be done. We want our prayers answered in a way, in, in our timing, right? And if they're not, we wonder, well, what's wrong with our faith? And some will say that God does not answer Jesus. Well, okay. Um, the writer of Hebrews says otherwise. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Michael Green wrote a great answer to the question. He said, The prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane shows that we can be close to God, live a holy life, and pray with faith, earnest and expectancy, and yet not get what we ask for. It's a profound mystery before which we must bow. Hmm. Which means acknowledging, God, your will be done, even if I don't get it. We don't know the mind of God. We don't know his plans. We don't know how he's going to work out our present troubles for his glory. All we can say in faith is your will be done. And remember, we live in a broken world. Prayer is not about manipulating God to our will. It's opening up to God and trusting that whatever pain we go through in this process, that he is here with us. It's God's will, not our own. Remember, Jesus said, if anybody wants to follow, they've got to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. When you take up your cross, you die to your own desires. You choose to follow God's will rather than your own. Jesus grew more accepting of God's 
will through prayer. And you can too. But only if you're seeking God's will and not your own. Prayer does not always change the outcome. But prayer will always change you. Which is more important to you? Because it actually depends on whether or not you're praying for your will or for God's will to be done. The band can come up. Our challenges, our agonies, they actually overwhelm us on a daily basis. And many times we all feel alone. But rest assured, God is there. He's always there. He's not hiding. He's not gone astray. He's not become unwilling. And God is at work. And His work is always good. When Jesus left Gethsemane, the challenge of the future was still there. The agony of the cross was still ahead of. Easter was about to come, as we know it. But Jesus came through Gethsemane. He came through strengthened in knowing God's will more surely and he could face anything God allowed in his life. Because of what happened in his Gethsemane, he was now prepared for the cross. May God make us ready for his perfect will, whatever that may be. It's not an easy message. As a matter of fact, there are people here this morning who hear my words and are so angry. I can't help you with your anger. I can only direct you to the healer. Becky Terabassi, she wrote a book and it says, Let Prayer Change Your Life. This is what she said. After praying for one hour every day, my perspective of prayer changed. I learned that prayer is not a monologue to a deaf God, but a conversation with a God who hears prayer. Prayer is not helping God with an answer. It's asking God to help. It's not telling God what to do. It's telling Him my needs. It isn't so much for the disciplined as for the undisciplined. Prayer is not necessarily meant to be an easy joyride, but definitely it's a spiritual discipline that produces joy. Prayer is not just coming to Jesus. It's letting Jesus come into me. Prayer is not only for the educated seminary scholar. It's for anyone who will practice, persevere, and plan to pray. It's not a substitute for time in the Bible. It will lead to the Bible. Prayer is not for the impatient, but for the one who waits. Prayer is not a place to boast, but a place to confess. Prayer is not my motivating God, but God's motivating me. Prayer is not a waste of time. It's an appointment with the King of Kings. Stand with me, please. I want to release you. And before I do, I want to pray a prayer that is written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And then I'll give you the blessing. Thank you for coming. Thank you for putting up with me on a heavy message on such a fabulous morning. But may I draw you back to the cross. Oh God, early in the morning, I cry to you. 
So help me to pray and to consecrate my thoughts on you because I cannot do this alone. In me there is darkness, but with you there is light. I'm lonely, but you don't leave me. I'm feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. I don't understand your ways, but you know the way for me. Restore me to liberty. Enable me to live now that I may answer before you and before me, Lord, whatever this day may bring. May your name be praised. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. If you want a blessing before you go, just put your hands up. Here it is. Soul Sanctuary, may God surround you in comfort. May God fill you with his love. May God provide you with strength. And may God touch your mind, your soul, and your body. And so may you feel loved as you leave. May you be safe as you leave. May you be protected as you leave. May you be strong as you leave. May you be healed as you leave. And finally, be encouraged as you leave. Be blessed. Go live the church and give somebody a high five on the way out. See you later.